So settling in with the intention to be sitting together in this group this evening. You can take a moment to look at the other people on the screen if you want before you start and just know that this is our little Sangha for this evening. And then when you're ready, you can close your eyes if that's comfortable for you and just settling in to your sitting posture. Finding a good spot. You might start with a long, slow, deep breath to really fill the lungs and even the body with the breath and just connecting in and then just letting the out breath be natural and returning to natural breathing. Taking a few moments to settle into a helpful posture. So perhaps feeling the spot where you're sitting, your seat against the chair or the cushion. Your legs or your feet against the floor, or if you're lying down, sensing what's supporting you. And just feeling that um, stability where you're being held up. And to whatever degree you can this evening, giving yourself over to that support. And then you may sense that rising up from this stable base is your body with the spine in the middle. It rises up from the base like a sea plant off the sea floor, kind of buoyed upward. And we can let the arms float like the fronds of the sea plant head floating on the spine, just some sense of lightness to the posture. And softening a bit, softening the face, muscles of the forehead and the eyes and the jaw. Softening the eyes and the eye sockets. down through the throat and the shoulders, 
Letting the shoulders soften. Maybe feeling like the joints expand a bit from the inside. Opening the muscles of the upper back. Down through the chest and the belly area. Just letting the belly expand. You can simultaneously expand the low back muscles. So both sides of the spine kind of fall away from the bones. Down through the hip joints and the groin muscles, down into the thighs. The calves and the ankle joints. And then including the feet and the hands. So we just invite ease through the body. And if there are parts that aren't really at ease, that's fine. Just have mental ease with how the body is. Right now, it's fine. And then in the mind, I would invite evoking something in your practice that feels like or invites confidence for you, something that evokes confidence or trust or faith in your practice. What is that for you at this moment? And just kind of rest in that feeling. And with that in mind, you can turn to your main meditation object. If you usually use the breath or the body, or if you're currently in a phase of doing heart practices, just going ahead with that, but seeing how it is when it's informed by this initial touching into or place of refuge.
I didn't realize when I um, paused the recording, it would say something about that. So now I know. Actually, that, um, that feature can be turned off. It just doesn't have to be on this account. They've changed it, so you can now turn that off. But apparently not on this account. Okay. So um, this evening, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit or kind of explore together this topic of refuge and the um, different ways, different aspects of practice that can be inspiring or faith-inducing or trust-evoking in us. And, you know, you might say to some degree, well, the person's a dedicated practitioner, they've already got some of that under their belt, and that's true. Um, and yet, uh, really, for anybody on the path, there can be times when our confidence or our trust or something feels uh, a little weak or not as available to us. That can really happen to anybody. Um, and But the difference between a total beginner and somebody with a little bit more experience is how they handle periods like that. So people with um, some degree of practice maybe have, have a better sense of what is a valid and genuine reference refuge for them. And you know, therefore, things that they can do to uh, affect a state of low trust or um, yeah, shaky confidence in the practice or in ourselves or something. Um, so I thought what I would do is um, offer a whole bunch of them. This is from something that I'm writing right now. So uh, I, I thought I'd just offer you know, a whole bunch of different ways that people connect with their practice, connect with their higher values, connect with the Dharma, however you want to say it. And your task tonight might be kind of to see which ones resonate and also um, to consider if there are ones that you hadn't even thought about that you might want to experiment with um, and have um, some sense of what they are. So, uh, in organizing them, I found that, that they kind of generally fall into four categories, roughly. But these, this isn't like doctrinal categories. These were just, you know, Kim's categories uh, that she figured out from uh, putting together a large number of things that could be called objects of faith. So, uh, and if you don't like the word faith, which I know some people don't, don't worry about it. Just substitute something else. It's no problem. Um, however, and however you think about the whole religious thing versus anything else is totally fine. Even people who don't are um, kind of allergic to the religious aspect of the Dharma, something is keeping them going if they're practicing for years and years, if they're meditating. So whatever that is for you. So don't get entangled in particular terms, I hope. Um, so the first category, um, would be uh, other people in our lives. That's often a place where it's easy for us to have uh, trust or confidence evoked because most of us have interaction right here on the screen. You know, we have other people that we're practicing with, but many people have a teacher or a local sangha or um, uh, 
other people that they've met. So I would suggest that the, the Dharma or something inspiring is visible in other people who are well-practiced. And, you know, if you have kind of a vague sense of that or you're, you're, you know, you've kind of noticed it but haven't really brought it into your consciousness because it feels a little woo-woo or weird, it's true. It's really true. Uh, it shows in other people. And so um, for, some, for some people, they notice that people who are well-practiced have bright, shining eyes. You know, there's something about looking at them. They're present. Um, they're there. They're aware in some way. You can see that. And there's also a certain brightness to um, often to the complexion of people who have practiced. That is documented in the suttas, actually. So forget going to the spa and having all this treatment. You just meditate for 10 years and you will look better than, than if you went to Club Med for a while. Um, and I mean, I'm making light of it, but it's, I don't know what it is, but it's, um, you know, maybe it has to do with the energy that circulates. It, it does actually change. It's not an accident also that monastics always look really young or often do. It's this anti-aging effect of jhana. <laughs> so um, it's not a, a total cure. You're still going to die and age and all that. But um, it's, it's if you've also another one of those things that if you've kind of imagined it's actually true. <laughs> so, okay. Um, and then also it can actually just be the way people are moving or carrying themselves. If they're very mindful, if they just have a habit of being mindful. Uh, my teacher tells a story of practicing at Tassahara when he was very uh, young in his practice. And he um, looked out of his dorm window one day and he saw one of the cooks um, going to the kitchen across the courtyard that he could see. Um, and, you know, the cook wasn't any teacher or anything, but they were a dedicated longtime practitioner. They were the head cook at Tassahara at the time. And he said that just the way the guy walked across the courtyard um, got his attention. It was like, wow, you know, really focused, present, clear in what he was doing. I've had a similar experience in that um, uh, one time when I was on a long retreat, uh, Joseph Goldstein arrived to teach in the middle of the retreat. And um, uh, he's a well-known, wonderful elder in our tradition, if you're not familiar with him. And I love Joseph's teachings and had been with him a few times before, but you know he's on the East Coast, so I don't see him much. But when he came in, it was during a sit and I kind of opened my eyes slightly and I, I saw him walk across the front of the room to sit down. And I felt this um, uh, energy rising in my body, um, kind of an uplift in my heart, which um, sort of had to do with the memory of, of him, but also it had to do in that moment with seeing, you know, it was evoked by the seeing of the way he was carrying himself to walk into the Dharma hall. And I recognized the feeling immediately of um, sadha, which is the um, Pali word that's sometimes translated as faith or confidence or trust or conviction, um, sadha. And it has, a, it has an energetic feeling to it. I'll talk a little bit about that later also. Um, so it wasn't anything about Joseph personally, um, but just, you know, his dharma presence. And so, uh, and also interacting with people can bring up faith. If we interact with someone who is really an attentive listener, um, that can help uh, open our heart in certain ways. We're good spiritual friends, you know, Kalyanamita, even if they're not 
teachers or anything, if they're just longtime practitioners, they can remind us of what's important to us about practice. So you can think about, I think this is probably a category that everyone is somewhat familiar with. So you can think to yourself uh, about the people who help evoke faith in you. And then um, in addition, there are objects, you know, objects of the senses. So, um, you know, sometimes the five physical senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching in the teaching, the Buddhist teachings like the suttas, mostly those are associated with restraint. <laughs> you know, it's like restrain the sense doors, make sure you're not getting attached to all these pleasures. And so there's kind of get a bad rap, you know, like the physical world that we're in if you read these old texts. But uh, really, uh, not all sense stimuli need to be avoided or restrained. Um, some of them evoke faith, you know, and they're used. <laughs> they're used in the um, religious aspect of Buddhism. So Buddha Rupa is like the guy behind me. You know, there's no reason I sit in front of him while I'm teaching because it might evoke something for you. It certainly is nice when I sit, I'm facing the other way and I, I face him. Um, and that's helpful. I find that supportive. Some people do. Um, for some people, even the religious objects like relics or stupas are, um, are faith evoking or seeing uh, monastics, seeing monastic robes. Um, there's something about that that can uh, look nice. Um, but also simple things like, you know, sort of more environmental things like the beauty of a retreat center or uh, this, the simple elegance of a monastery um, that is deliberate. I mean, of course, it's partly deliberate to evoke tranquility of the mind so that we can practice while we're there. But um, also it has to do with evoking our faith, our confidence, our inspiration. Um, and so these are things that are that we see you know, that are come in through the eye door. And there's also the hearing, hearing the Dharma. So listening to Dharma talks or guided meditations. We can, uh, at times, you know, when your mind is busy or rushed or you're kind of forgetting like why you're supposed to be sitting, you can listen to a 15 minute Dharmet. There's lots of short Dharma talks online. And um, you might remember in those 15 minutes and suddenly your whole mind aligns and it's like, oh, right, you know, that's, um, that's what I'm interested in. That makes sense. That feels true. And then there's the rest of my life, you know, so it can really help if you're, especially if you're feeling a little down or discouraged or not clear, uh, just listen to the Dharma and see if that um, evokes it for you. The voice of the person speaking might have some resonance in it that uh, resonates inside of you. Another thing that sounds, you know, you may not have brought right into consciousness, but Sometimes people think, oh, the voice, you know, just that voice. It's real. That's real. Um, and then um, uh, being in nature, you know, that's another area of sense stimulation, ordinary senses of seeing trees and butterflies and streams and clouds. And, you know, these things are uh, uh, demonstrate the principles of the Dharma, things like impermanence and not self hard to look at a cloud and think it's yours, you know. Um, so, and of course, you know, change and death and other things that are real. And so we see that all around us and it can be very healing and empowering to sit in nature and remember that we're part of that. We're, we are that. Our body is going the same way as all those physical things. 
So this can also um, evoke faith and confidence in a practice that's about seeing the nature of things, seeing how things are, seeing how things work. It's not so uh, difficult when you're looking out at the at nature, which can't help but be itself. It's the human mind that tangles everything up. <laughs> nature is just itself. So that can be nice. Um, and then we get in also to the realm of the uh, sixth sense, um, the cognitive mind. And also I'm going to blur that together with the chitta, with the heart, the heart mind, more the emotional mind. But, you know, it's all the mind. Um, and there are many uh, areas that you, know, you might think, well, the mind, that's kind of left out of faith. You know, that's more about wisdom or investigation or something a little bit more rational. Um in some way, but actually there's a cognitive dimension to faith. Um, the Buddha encourages reflection and um, reflection on the teachings, reflection on our experience, reflection on whether things make sense. Um, you know, this is encouraged that we, you know, we don't just blindly accept things. And so actually for um, many early stage practitioners, the first taste of real confidence comes when we think about the fact that we've been practicing for a while and lo and behold, some habit has changed. You know, we didn't try to, we didn't go to anger management class, but suddenly we're less angry. And so there's like, oh. And so you had to go through that conscious reflection and then you start to realize, oh, maybe this does work. You know, something is changing. Not exactly sure what or how, but um, that's a very nice reflection to do, and it induces some degree of confidence. And then we think, well, maybe, maybe if I keep going, something else would happen, or some suffering has been reduced. You know, and that's a perfectly valid thing to think about with your rational mind, and it induces some confidence. The process works. The mind can be trained. And then there's also... Um, cognitive examples of hearing stories that are meaningful for us. So we hear stories of people gain, other people gaining faith or people overcoming suffering or could be in the suttas or it could be more contemporary examples. Um, when I was thinking about this particular area, what came to mind was the story of Kisa Gotami, um, who's the, uh, some of you are familiar, but if not, she's a woman who was very distraught because her uh, child died and she um, ran around, uh, you know, clutching the dead child, wishing that it could come back, you know, understandable emotional response. And she went to the Buddha very upset and he, he just said, okay, okay, um, well, let me first, before we get into this, before I teach you any practices, why don't you go around to the houses of this village and find a house, uh, find a mustard seed from a house that has not known death, that has not experienced any death. And so, you know, she was just, had just enough faith to do that, to actually you know, follow that instruction. And of course she couldn't find that, but um, it helped her understand you know, what was going on. And so we can, we can resonate with, I think, all the players in this. We can resonate with her grief. Um, we can resonate with her wise insight of realizing, oh, right, everybody encounters death. There's no household that's not touched by death and how that opened her eyes and woke her up a bit, calmed her down a bit. And we can resonate with the Buddha's compassion for giving her just the right teaching at that moment 
very skilled of him to do that. So I don't know. I feel like these kinds of stories, which essentially go into the uh, the mind, but also the emotions, can also help us to resonate at some level with the teachings. Um, some people do find a sense of trust in the teachings of the Pali Canon. It's not for everybody, but um, I find that knowing that they were composed many centuries ago and uh, halfway across the world, literally, somehow lends credence to their profundity because what they say, um, I can observe in my mind here and now. Oh, it's like, wow, really? Like there's a sutta that, that says anger is like a careening chariot. And we might suddenly realize, yeah, actually, that's pretty much what it feels like. And then you can start to say, okay, well, so maybe um, there are other possibilities from these texts that are also going to be real. Maybe samadhi's real. Maybe anatta makes some sense. I don't really maybe directly experience that immediately, but you know, the first part about the anger, that made sense. So maybe, so we can, for some people that, that helps um, evoke some trust. So now we're moving into the realm of the chitta. We started maybe with the cognitive mind, the more thinking mind, but if we go through the emotions, we actually get into the, the chitta, the heart mind, the wise heart that we have, that we start to develop through practice. And this can be directly touched by some experiences like such that faith is evoked. You might be surprised to learn that um, one of the experiences from the text that evokes faith is suffering. So dukkha. Um, there's the text on transcendent dependent arising starts with suffering. And the next step is faith. And then it goes on through the all the way through awakening. So it's interesting that um, this is a skillful response to suffering. You know, we, when we suffer, we could just grasp and cling and identify and try to avoid it and run away from it and fix it and change it and get angry about it. Or we could um, use it as a uh, sense that there could be another way. You know, there, you know, there is a path out of this in some sense. And maybe at first we just intuit that or we borrow it from somebody else. But there can be a point in practice where we have enough initial confidence that uh, suffering itself already evokes faith in us. It's like, oh, there it is again. I know there's a way out. I know there's going to be, if I practice with this, if I turn toward it instead of away from it, there will be something there, something for me. And that turning toward is actually... An, an act of wisdom in some ways, but also an act of compassion you know, because it's directly addressing suffering. So there's a link between suffering and faith. And I encourage you to explore that. Um, you know, the Buddha responded with faith when he um, uh, was living a life of pleasure, but then he discovered aging, illness, and death. And he also discovered that he wasn't very happy with that life. But nonetheless, he could have when he discovered aging, illness, and death, and the just you know the reality of the human condition, he could have gone back to his life of pleasure, but he didn't. He went out on his quest instead. Um, that was an act of faith. That was how he. That was what his faith looked like in the faith of face of suffering. 
So you might consider in your own life, um, what was that turn for you? You've all made it to the cushion in some ways. Was there some suffering that at some point turned you toward this or got you in touch with this? And is that a source of refuge for you, knowing that you did that? Knowing that you had that much wisdom or compassion at that moment, you were able to pick this up. So the experience of faith is like um, I mentioned earlier, I would say a little bit about how it feels. It's, I would say that it's like intuiting a space of possibility just beyond what we know, in a sense, just beyond what we can know. And there's sort of a brightening of the mind and a pleasant feeling that has nothing to do with sensuality. So faith can coexist with pain or with sorrow. It's fine. We can have faith in the face of un other unpleasant experiences. Um, and I would say that there's a kind of an energetic movement to faith uh, that could be a lifting upward or a slight up. Uh, forward movement, kind of a, a, a drawing toward, there's a movement toward energetically, even if you don't move physically in the mind, there's a movement toward, even if we don't know toward what, um, kind of like the way a plant is oriented toward the sun in a certain way, that's kind of how faith orients us toward something good. Uh, I looked up the word tropism, actually, to see if that was an appropriate word. And it is, because it, it means something like um, uh, involuntary natural movement, something like that. And it, uh, that sounded, I thought that's exactly what faith is. You know, it's um, not necessarily conscious or chosen. And I think there is a way in which the movement along the path is like a, a movement of nature, as natural as gravity, or something else, um, but you know, the problem is that there's a lot of stuff in the way, and so we have to clear the mind of all that stuff, and then it will just just go. It's just that's what it does. So faith is our intuition of that line of force, if you will. So I think learning to recognize this experience helps to strengthen it. So feel for yourself and your body what. Um, what faith feels like when it's strong. And then you could evoke that deliberately. This is yet one more way. Uh, we must up, be up to 15 ways or so. I hope you've been teaching, taking notes um, on all these different ways. So we could, why not evoke it? You know, if, um, uh, so like if uh, it's a movement upward, you can sit and actually kind of draw yourself up a bit. Um, inhale deeply into the chest. So the chest comes forward. Um, the Buddha image, uh, you may notice on, this one's not too prominent actually, but there are Buddhas where the chest is kind of like puffed out, kind of like Superman style. Um, and, you know, he's sitting up straight, not stiff, but the, the forward chest is um, meant to convey confidence, you know, that that's the Buddha's um, lion-like nature of having, you now he has complete confidence of you know, he has complete knowledge and uh, total understanding. So he's a little different from us, but it's expressed as that um, confident uh, chest. So um, if you're feeling not too confident, why not take strike the pose and see if that helps a little bit. I've done that actually on retreats. Um, when I was dragging a bit, I've 
deliberately sat myself up and maybe looked at the Buddha statue. And it, it does help. It does evoke some of that energetic feeling. So, um, so that was three categories, right? Other people, the five senses, and then the, the mind and the chitta, I sort of lumped together. And then the fourth would be um, actions. You know, faith is an action in a sense. Um, it's the first of the five faculties and the, the, facult the second one that it leads to is energy. So faith is meant to have a motivational component that, it, that leads to action, to energy, to effort in some way. You tend not to, you tend to put effort into the things that you're confident about and you, tend, you wouldn't put effort into something that you had absolutely no confidence in. So there is a relationship there. But I'm claiming that it goes the other way too, is that there are certain, there are actions that are an expression of faith, but there are also actions that evoke faith in some way. Um, there's some mutual relationship there. So there's a whole bunch of them, you know, that are possible. Um, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha can recite the refuges anytime. You can do it in your mind. Um, some people do it at the beginning of a sit. It's done traditionally at the beginning of a retreat. That's not an accident. That's meant to evoke your faith at the beginning to get started. Um, but there are so many other ways. I mean, people find uh, service very inspiring, serving the Sangha, um, serving um, other people. You know, that can remind you of your deepest values, of why you practice the Dharma, of you know, what's um, possible through practice is to become available, to become generous, to become more open in how we are. And so that can be a great way uh, if we're feeling a little bit weak in our practice. I'm reminded of a friend. Um, uh, the, I have two friends who are a, a couple. And one time the husband came home from work and he was very uh, grumpy and in a bad mood. And um his wife, who's, a who's the teacher, who's the guiding teacher of their sangha, um, didn't want to deal with him in the mood he was in. And so she said, go, she shut the door and said, go out and help somebody. And you know, don't come back until you've given something to somebody. <laughs> go out and help somebody, find someone to help. And so he went out and I don't know what he did, but he you know, found some simple act of generosity that he could do. And he felt so much better. <laughs> and he came back in a much better mood. <laughs> so... I thought that was quite wise of her, but he was also appreciative that she had seen that. Um, so that's one possibility. If you're feeling a little down, go do something for someone. See if you feel better. And then there's, you know, there's going on retreat. Um, these days, that's not as so possible, literally, although it's soon it will be, hopefully. Um, but, you know, that's a little bit longer uh, commitment, but it's a great way to refresh your practice is to do a retreat, even just a weekend. And then, um, then there's all kinds of things. And if these aren't your thing, you can just skip over them. But um, reciting or chanting the Dharma or things like um, bowing and prayer and ritual and other things. Again, these are things that, um, you know, they're if you might have had sort of an intuition of does that really do anything? Yeah, it does. <laughs> There's a reason why all these things are true and all these things done in every religion in some way is that they um, center the mind, they center the heart, they remind us of what's important. So we have to, they're very individual and they, you can't 
do it on command and you can't do it if it's you know not your thing so you know don't make yourself do any of these things but um if they help you know it can be really nice to do some of those and then um there's uh working with an altar so um you know i have a little altar here and i have some things on it that are meaningful for me you know like this little shell is um one that I picked up on the beach with the day that I arrived in Sri Lanka to do a period of practice. So it's uh, washed by the Indian Ocean. It just kind of spoke to me from the sand. So I took it with me. So now it sits on my altar. And, you know, I have, I've had other things on the altar at various times, and I sort of put them on and off, you know, over time as they seem relevant. Uh, when I go to the Forest Refuge, which is a center out in Massachusetts, um, the rooms there are very spare with white walls and you know just a simple desk and a bed and that's kind of it um, so what i usually do on the first day that i'm there is i go out and i collect some things from nature i get a pine cone and a well i've been there in february and even in february you can find stuff so you know you can always get a pine cone and an acorn and um, some winter berries or something or in the summer some flowers and I just, you know, get a few things from around and I make a little altar. I always bring a little Buddha with me and I make a little altar in the room and I put it in a place where I'll, I can see it while I'm sitting. And then I use it during the time. And then I have a little ritual that on the last day I go out and I return everything to nature that I got. Um, I, I scatter it again. And it feels like that um, frames the retreat in a nice way. Uh, that retreat center doesn't have formal retreats. You just arrive and leave whenever you want. And so you have to create your own space. There's no chanting of the refuges at the beginning, although I do that on my own. So, you know, finding these ways to do this in your own life where you also don't have a formal retreat structure, you know, what do you do? Do you have something that you do every week, every day before a sit um, that kind of creates the atmosphere, creates the space for you? So... Definitely not everything I went through is appropriate for everyone or for all times. You might like something for a while and then it kind of doesn't have meaning for you anymore. Or something will come in and suddenly you'll be into chanting the refuges every day. I don't know. Uh, the practice works through us in strange ways. So I invite you to, you know, find um, a toolbox of things that evoke faith or that are meaningful for you as refuges. And then anytime that's feeling a little like you're not as connected, you can try some of them. Maybe you got some ideas from what I said. And so you can just try them out and see which ones feel meaningful for you. I've experimented with a number of these and sometimes they're, they work and sometimes not. And there's even more than what I said. These are just what I kind of what I went through. Um, so that was all a long way of saying, um, you know, Find your toolbox. And I hope I hope while I was talking, as I said at the beginning, maybe you thought of some examples in each case. Like, was that meaningful for me? Do I have a story like that my, myself? Um, so I think I want to, I kind of want to stop and stop throwing things at you, but um, get a sense of, you know, uh, how do you work with refuge? And is this, uh, are some of these meaningful for you or are there other ones? Or if you have you had trouble with this, and I don't know, just kind of what did all this evoke for you?
case you thought there weren't a lot of faith objects in Theravada Buddhism, ha, there's a lot. Michael. Yeah, I just wanted to share that um, I find Pali chanting very uh, faith inducing. And I, mm. last week I was on retreat and while it was uh, a little disappointing not to be in the physical retreat center, they, they had to change that one sort of silver lining of it being a virtual retreat is that I could do a morning and evening puja, um, which, uh, you know, you can't really do that in a retreat center. It would be disturbing. Um, and so I, I just found that um, very supportive to have to do a you know 30 or 40 minute puja in that morning and evening. Oh, excellent. That's great. That really adds a lot. Um, if the retreat isn't offering that formally. Yeah, this place I mentioned, the Forest Refuge, they have a chanting room in a separate building. <laughs> so you oh. can go and chant anytime you want. It's kind oh, of sweet. Nice. Sometimes you hear people there. Oh, Nicholas. Yeah, with poly chanting, I, uh, it's such a lovely practice because I, I had a morning where my voice was very hoarse and I got to see how much I like cling to the quality of the chanting. Mm. And so I think like kind of sticking through phases where it's like unpleasant to chant or where it's boring to chant, it's been really rich actually to connect to like a, a deeper source of confidence than just the kind of the aesthetic, which can be supportive. It's not necessarily bad, but to kind of like explore where does the uplift come from when it sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, then then you're not just using the five senses, you're going deeper into the heart and um, that is important. That's actually one of the, I didn't really talk much about ritual and we don't do much in this um, tradition, but that's one of the um, ideas behind ritual practice. When you do rituals, you just do it. You know, it's like, you don't get a choice. You have to do it this way and you have to do it every day. They do this on the Tibetan three-year retreat, for example, do a lot of ritual and uh, treating practice as ritual where it doesn't matter. You don't matter in ritual. You know, you're just, you just do this thing. <laughs> and so um, what you find out from that is that you, um, you, you meet your minds like, okay, this is how the ritual looks when I'm angry. This is how the ritual looks when I'm dead tired. This is how it looks when I'm happy and inspired. And, you know, and it's just, you just do the same thing. Oops, you just do the same thing again and again. Um, and so from that, you start uh, falling away from the personal layer of how I am today uh, to just giving yourself over to something. It becomes an anatta practice to just do the same thing again, again, regardless of how you feel. So that's a whole mode of practicing. And it's, I, I know you weren't exactly saying this, but the way you were treating the chanting reminded me of that mode of practice where um, it's not about the actual exact thing, but more about the doing of it and how, how that affects the system. Yeah, there's so much to explore in this. Thank you. Heidi. I think that um, in the before time, I found uh, some spaces very inspiring, like the meditation hall at the retreat center at IRC or inside Santa Cruz downtown. And um, 
it's taken some getting used to not being able to inhabit those spaces physically, but what's taken the place is seeing the faces of Sangha members in the Zoom room, that that evokes that feeling of, ah, here we are together to support each other. It's, it's really nice and I'm really looking forward to getting back in the spaces as well. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think we're all ready to come back at some point soon. But you know, folks who didn't think that uh, the Zoom thing would ever work have found that it's, you know, you can have some feeling evoked when looking at these little squares on the screen. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for that. Okay, the, the first hand I, that's there is Betsy and then Shakti. Hi, um, thank you. Uh, that was a lot. <laughs> There were a lot of refuges in there, and many of them I could deeply relate to. Um, and I really appreciate that, you know, I'm, I'm sure this was over time that you compiled this list of all these refuges. Um, and I'm sure that you've found refuge in all of those yourself. And so that's, that's really inspiring right there. Um, but there was one that came to my mind that I don't think you mentioned, um, but I have found it to be a really great refuge for me in both times of, you know, feeling very comfortable and content in my life, but also in times of feeling deep suffering arising for whatever reason. Um, and that's the pause. The pause. And just being able to stop and really take in whatever is happening in that moment and really just ground into whatever it is and not react, not respond, just be with. Okay. Yeah. So just that, stopping. Yeah. Yeah. In that pause, just being able to take that pause. And so I wanted to add that one to your mix. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, Shakti. So um, I just came back from a long stint in the hospital. So I didn't have a lot of resources to call upon. But I found that when I, you talked about refuge, I came to my heart as a refuge. And that was like a big welcoming space for me. <clears throat> and I realized that through sort of all the dukkha that I've been through, in a way that my heart was a place where I held all the, the sukha that I could share and that I could lend compassion and understanding from the dukkha that I've been through, but also sort of this uninterruptible sense of well-being and joy that I could still uncover in my heart. And um, I think that is something that 
has come from practice, even though I haven't been formally sitting for a while. Um, you know, I'm finding different ways of doing things. I'm formally laying down with the group today and Zoom land. So um, that works fine too. And thinking about, yeah, I could put my Buddha on the ledge near me so I could see him. And I have flowers across the room that I can see. So, nice. you know, just creating that space if you can, but even if you can't, finding it within yourself. Nice. I'm glad to hear you're out. I remember you were in the hospital last time you joined us. So I know that was, um, this is a change. Yeah. Well, for somebody like you who has a strong practice, there is that internal refuge. And that is um, a great gift when we uh, have built up the momentum to be able to find that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, Michaela. I, I, want, to, I want to follow um, that because I realized this is a great, great list, a great reminder of all the ways. And um, what I realized for me is the refuge that I take. In, I, I've been calling it my inner knowing, but it's, it's the heart. It, it definitely it's in my heart and it has just been activated big time. And it, if I, if I listen and follow, I'm just like liberated all over the place. It's just been wonderful. So I, I cultivate that, you know, and I, and I pay attention and I get direct, I get instructions. I got an instruction this morning when I woke up to drop out of something that I had committed to do a, a panel at a bookstore. And, um, it was a book about my uh, departed husband. And I said, yes, in a moment of thinking it was going to be really fun and being with all these people and everything like that. And the closer I'm getting, the more I realize I, I don't, this is private and, and, and too, too hard. You know, it's too much emotion for me. I can't, I can't be out in the world with that. You know, you, you could do it one-on-one, -on -one, but you just don't have a whole big bookstore full of people. So I, 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 what is it? Um, created or I composed an email very carefully, and before I sent it, I went and sat for a little while, oh. and two things came in that sitting to change in the email that would just make it a little sweeter and a little bit more easy to swallow. And I sent it, and it was the end of the work day, but she, the woman, was still there, and she wrote back right away, said, "I totally understand." don't worry about it at all. We'll just won't put it, we'll take you out of the advertisement that's going to be publicized. So it just went smooth as silk. And I, and I just felt, yes, you know, I felt really proud and happy and released and relieved. Um, that was just a little story in my, in my day today. But I think that we all, oh, and, and the other thing is that all of us need to realize that we are uh, presence in in the world, the amount of practice you know that we've been doing it shows all around, and people notice it. And we have to realize that that's a gift that we're giving. It's it's like our service in some ways of our our being. 
and and to just acknowledge that and um, um, celebrate it too. It's a beautiful thing. So thank you for this reminder. Well, thank you, Michaela. I'm glad your intuition has served you well today. <laughs> and yeah, there is a, an opening um, through practice to um, what impersonal impersonal understandings that are helpful. Yeah. And I know about changing emails after writing, after sitting. <laughs> there's a way in which, um, yeah, there's something that can come through. If I may, really quickly, this reminded me uh, actually the most powerful uh, kind of evoking of faith for me is really taking refuge in karma right now. And for me, that's not, I mean, reflecting on all of the moments of cultivation in my life, but actually really like taking in all of the moments of cultivation in like a teacher's life and in the life of that teacher and thinking about just not thinking about, but really taking in all of the goodness and all of the commitment going back generations and generations and then turning it forward and really like feeling the goodness of being a condition and being a cause for goodness in the lives of others going forward. I think for me, the, it's sort of being in a place where kind of placing my existence and placing my action in that stream of goodness is really, it evokes a lot of confidence and a lot of commitment to the practice. Yeah, that's one of the reflections that the Buddha encourages, the reflection on the Dharma. Um, beautiful. Yeah, it has that, it can have that effect. Thank you. And then, um, Evie, your hand is up. Why don't we make that the last one? Or if anyone needs to leave at that this moment, it's fine. I mean, so, so many, so many of the things you said, I didn't say anything just because so many are so right. But one thing did occur to me, which is sort of slightly more interesting, at least to me, which is um, meta practice as. Um, sort of a, a, a route to faith. And it, because for two reasons, one is just that I can always count on it to, um, to do its thing, like to open my heart and to like, it, it just, it always works. And the other thing is kind of more profound for me, which is that like when I first started exploring Buddhism and like I got to, I think it was chapter three of the wise heart and like, I couldn't even read the chapter about met. I just thought it was ridiculous. The idea of offering myself um, like compassion or kindness or anything. Now, I mean, not ridiculous intellectually, but like, I couldn't do it. Like psychologically, I, I just wasn't there. I did not, I could not have possibly basically given myself permission to do that. And so for me, like seeing how, how much things have changed because of my practice and other things too, but really largely because of the practice. Um, meta is like, like, wow, I never thought that was possible. In addition to just having the practice be very powerful for me and actually more, more meta for other people than for myself. But still the fact is now, you know, I can, whatever I, I can do sort of all layers of it. So yeah. A cool thing seeing there's change seeing that it's actually worked yeah yeah wonderful good well i wish you all a wonderful um 
practice of faith and uh, confidence and finding refuge at the moments when you need it. Uh, the more we kind of think about these things and immerse ourselves in them, uh, the more they'll just be available. We won't have to write down the list and go through it and see which one might be useful. It'll just, um, you know, maybe kind of intuitively come to us how to rebalance the mind. So nice to see everyone and um, have a good month. We'll be back on the first Tuesday in October. Bye-bye. Feel free to unmute and say goodbye. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.